Welcome to this new adventure of a podcast where I get to appease my desire to be a teacher without having to deal with the restless students. I'm Levi and this is Remedial Scholar. You might be asking yourself, who is this? Why should I listen to you? And I am by no means an expert, but I am a constant learner. I'm always reading about random things, the kinds of facts you get from that one random friend who seems to have them coming out of his ears at any point. The friends who you have to ask, why do you even know that when they tell you something that's interesting? That's what I am, and that's what I hope to do uh, to bring you in this podcast. I wanted to create a show dedicated to some of the topics that I feel are either underrepresented or could be broached in a different way. With that being said, this is not an accredited course. It's only me doing the research, and... I may miss some things, and there's a chance that I may process the dif- uh, information differently than somebody reading this exact same thing. So don't let me be the end-all be-all for your knowledge. Do your own investigating and discovery. My hope is that this show inspires you to research in- further into these topics, because I feel like if you are here, you already have a similar feeling towards historical events and topics as I do. With that, let's get into it. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need to know. Information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Dogs have been widely considered the best friends of humans for upwards of 30,000 years. But how did that relationship start? Moreover, when did that relationship turn from strangers to utilitarian purposes? Or has it always been quid pro quo? Today, we will be looking at the bond between Canis familiaris and Homo sapien and how we have been using dogs to our strategic advantage advantage as far back as they have been using us. So everybody get comfy because this will not be history in 30 seconds. War dogs. Where did we even come up with the concept of having dogs do our fighting? And we're going to be looking at the relationship, uh, how the relationship moved to that. We'll be starting with the evolution of dogs and how they came from wolves snarling at humans in the woods to being the fuzzy little weirdos that scare themselves when they fart too loud. After that, we'll discuss how they began to be our companions and how we shifted them from uh, shifted them into a mutually beneficial relationship and put them to work. Kind of rent they pay around here anyway. After that, we move into their roles in early combat, and then we zoom right on into the different battles and written accounts of their uses in wars and how they were utilized before discussing advances in dog training throughout that timeline. As we go, I will be describing how some dog breeds came to prominence and expanding on those before coming to modern dogs and the training that they go through to be the best dogs that they can be. So, feel free to take notes, but don't feel obligated because this is not going to be on the midterm. So this topic came into my brain the way most topics come to people. Video games. No, no, no. I don't think that's correct at all, but my ADHD riddled mind often wanders as I consume different types of media. And I was playing this uh, series called Total War, the Rome Rome 2 specifically. In this game, you get all sorts of different region-specific troops and and units to utilize in the aggression-filled campaigns to 
capture the full reaches of the Roman Empire. Or you can play as some of the smaller empires and fight the good fight against the Roman War Machine. All of this information is pretty much semi-moot, but in this game you can recruit war dog units consisting of handlers and what I can only assume are the version of the Roman Molossans, which we will discuss later. Using them to break lines, chase fleeing soldiers, or just as an extra defense when your city is attacked. These are all very similar to how these dogs would have been used in the ancient war sphere. We will be discussing this at length after a bit as well. Does it blow your mind that you can look at a bulldog and think of its ancestors as battle-hardened mastiff types, chomping after the occasional Celt? It makes me think of a scene from the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where a dude has daydreams about killing people with spears and arrows due to the fact that he is a direct line descendant of Genghis Khan. So I'm imagining this blank stare of this, <laughs> this bulldog dripping with spit having all these flashbacks of this massive dog chasing down some scrawny hoplite or something like that. I don't know. There's something there, but it is interesting that all of these toy breeds have a common ancestor. Like I think we get lost in the concept of a common ancestor as humans, but with animals it's uh but with animals specifically dogs, it really isn't that far back. While we can point to the common ancestor due to archaeology and fossil records, that's only half the story. We know dogs evolve, evolve from gray wolves or a common ancestor between the two and that this process began around 130,000 years ago. Was not told is how this happened, but there are many pretty educated assumptions on this. The biggest one is that the smell of freshly cooked food in hunter-gatherer camps drew wolves in while the more aggressive wolves would have been chased off, understandably so, the more curious and docile ones would have been greeted with less hostility and even some scraps. Yum. This process happening over long periods of time created bonds with these animals and humans that would expand to the different roles for the dogs and so on until around 30,000 years ago when we began to train, and train them domestically into specific breeds. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. How do we know that this is the favored method method favored method oh, of this interaction occurring? Replication, baby. In 1959, Soviet scientists named Dmitry Belayev began a study into the document uh, to document the domestication process and to see how many generations it would take for this process to be noticeable. Now they used silver foxes. And no, this is not how we got studs like Pierce Brosnan or George Clooney. <laughs> Dimitri is interesting enough on his own, but this study is really quite wild. Get it? Wild. <laughs> anyway, after graduating from the Ivanoka Agricultural Academy and then fighting in World War II, Dimitri was given a position at the Institute for Fur Breeding Animals, which is like the most Soviet sounding thing ever. Congratulations, Dmitri, on fighting Nazi. Now you may pursue animal interest at the Institute for Fur Breeding Animals in lovely Moscow. And so Dmitri was inspired by Darwin and the study of domesticated animals while in the Agricultural Academy and wanted to understand what are known as domestication syndrome traits that he had noticed. He hypothesized that humans needed animals with pro-social behaviors to domesticate. After all, you don't want something that will literally bite the hand that feeds. His methodology was that by taking the calmest pro-social animal 
of a litter and breeding them with other calm pro-social animals, you would soon have a domesticated animal. And he was right. Currently, there's a domesticated species of silver foxes residing in an experimental farm in the, near the Institute of Cytology and Genetics in Novobersk, Novosibirsk, Siberia. That was a tough one. The descendants of the beginning litters of this study. The foxes there now have many traits that we associated with domesticated species of dogs. Traits like floppy ears, upturned tails, juvenile facial features like shorter, more rounded noses. And the most interesting part, in my opinion, is the lighter fur color. The lack of adrenal output caused by breeding the most docile of these foxes caused the melanin output to drop and thus made their coats lighter. Now, all of these things happen within four generations of foxes. Because of this study and the work done by uh, Lyudmila Trut, Dimitri's mentee, we have a pretty good idea of how this process began, uh, how this process happened over the course of the years for our fu furry friends' ancestors. That's a tongue twister I didn't expect to have. Unsurprisingly, it wouldn't be much longer after these initial interactions and iterations of early dogs that humans began to realize their potential. Some suspect that the early adaptations of the wolves we began to domesticate fell under the hunting and protection. It's more likely that they were used in hunting as wolves on their own or obviously very astute hunters. Some even theorize that early humans used wolves to outlive their competitors in some ways, the Neanderthals. As humans began to farm, introducing the domestication of other animals such as livestock, these descendants would be used for herding and guardian for herding and guardians of said livestock these are the ancestors of the shepherd breeds as we know today other dogs were used for working and pulling like the sled dogs which are suspected to be around 9500 years old and now we're coming to the point where dogs are being bred for specific tasks herding hunting and most of all general protection the earliest version of these are a type of mastiff which of course they are. You need some big old hounds to defend the livestock from wolves and bears. In other parts of the world, dogs were seen as near royalty. It's no secret that the ancient Egyptians mummified their animals upon the death of their human. Even a god had the head of a... Well, it wasn't a dog, but it's a dog-adjacent animal, Anubis. <laughs> and this god would escort dogs to the Field of Reeds, which was their paradise. Well, all dogs go to heaven kind of scenario. As far as the utilitarian purposes of dogs, their roles have more or less been the same since the founding foundations of our modern human civilization. Some bred to specifics, introducing breeds like the Afghan Hound or the Saluki. As the world expanded to include more and more civilizations with written records of their dogs, we find Akitas, Greyhounds, Mastiffs, Malamutes, Chow Chows, each coming along for specific purposes or brought to existence because of the certain qualities they possessed. Uh, the oldest known civilization brought the oldest known dog accessories, leashes and collars. The Sumerians, that's who I was talking about if that wasn't clear, also were some of the first to bring dogs in to live within their city walls, which brought urbanism to the canines. This meant more guard jobs and less herding with, within the city. Guard dogs turn into attack dogs and then come into our topic, war dogs. Sumerians also gave birth to the written accounts of dogs, including Ishtar and her seven dogs. Now, while we do not have written accounts of dogs in battle until around 600 BCE, 
it is assumed that this was not the first time. With that being said, it's time to move on to military doggos and their successors. In the Kingdom of Lydia is the first documented account of the use of dogs for war purposes. Around 600 BCE, the Cimmerians, who are different from the Sumerians, we discussed a little bit ago, attacked the Lydians and their king, Aliates, and he deployed dogs to help defend their city. The kingdom of Lydia is most known for the their birth of the gold and silver coin minting. They are the first that we know of to do this and were even so well versed in gold that they had special stones that they would carry around and scratch suspected pieces of gold and if the coin left a yellow streak it was pure and whoever you were doing business was worth trusting but if it was red or brown it meant that the person was not to be trusted and the coin was a fake and then this stone would be known as the Lydian stone so they're very into gold now the Cimmerians uh, were a pain in the ass for most of Anatolia or Asia Minor as it were and they were horseback nomads who caused chaos around the lands. And after Aliates finally beat his attackers, Lydia became a major prosperous kingdom following this win. Now, is this due to the dogs? Maybe. I mean, it definitely seems like it could be. Uh, the Sumerians were nomadic and thus definitely ruffled the feathers of several kingdoms of Asia Minor. And essentially, a coalition force had driven the remaining Sumerians out after this point. This was largely due to the victory of Aliates. His dogs are said to have killed some invaders and routed others. These dogs were used as a fighting force, but some of uh, but some others have been used as a mental warfare tactic. In 525 BCE, the Battle, battle of Pelusium between the Egyptian army and the Achaemenian army, led by Cambyses II, Cambyses released dogs as well as cats and other sacred animals to which the Egyptian projectile forces would just stop firing since they held these animals so dear, which is a genius move. Oh, you love these things? Better not shoot us. You're going to kill them all. <laughs> In 490 BCE, the famous Battle of Marathon was fought and a dog followed his hoplite master into battle. This dog has been memorialized in many murals about this battle. Now, in the age of Rome, which was the inspiration for me to do this episode in the first place, dogs had many similar jobs we had mentioned before. They also bred a dog specific just for war. The mythical Molossus, or Molossin, was used in conjunction with the legionnaires. This dog originated in Greece, and like many other fine Greek things, Romans stole this too. Uh, the Molossin is thought to be an ancestor of the Mastiff breeds, so imagine the red roman shield like the big square shield right and the soldier carrying it looking massive already with this 200 pound dog marching with them just hungry angry ready to kill anything that runs away from them they're being used in more versatile ways such as chasing fleeing soldiers and breaking up formations disrupting momentum as well as just overwhelming troops and following up with cavalry. Now the Romans were not the only ones to be using dogs at this time either because uh, their primary enemies also used dogs. Julius Caesar, sounds familiar, uh, even wrote about the Celtic warriors that were flanked by their ferocious Irish wolfhounds. 
By 391 AD, there was this breed of dogs that was already known in Rome. It was a big deal because the Roman consul Quintus Aurelius received seven of them as a gift, and everyone in Rome was amazed by these things. And later on, these dogs were even used for the entertainment in the Circus Maximus. As time passed, the Celts were pushed back into Brittany and the British Isles, and they fought with their gentle giants with them. These hounds were so valuable that only emperors, kings, nobility, poets could own them, and they would be given as cherished gifts. They even had chains and collars made of precious metal and stones to decorate them. Now, it definitely should be noted that the majority of the dogs in these military campaigns were sentry-like. They watched over camps, alerted guards of approaching potential threats. They were not leading every battle. They certainly weren't the fodder for warriors of the ancient world. Dogs, like horses, had to be trained and thus had to have a trainer paid to train them, which could get expensive and, friz fr and frivolous spending was for banquets, not on battle, okay? However, Roman usage of various dog breeds did give birth to the military dog market. They had bred the Molossin from dogs they found in Greece to be better war dogs. Other people were doing the same thing. And since Rome had essentially created an international road system in Europe, traveling dog markets were now available. Even more varieties were birthed and crafted, and Roman houses now had beware of dog signs on, uh, on the floor in their mosaic floors in Latin. And no kidding, like literally beware of dog. A lot of these dogs being bred, unfortunately, would meet their end in many of the gladiatorial combat sessions littered throughout the Roman Empire. This would be echoed in the medieval period when baiting emerged as a popular pastime. I guess they thought having dogs try and kill humans was beneath them. So they had hungry, angry dogs fight bears and bulls or anything that seemed interesting enough. The larger animals would often be chained, so not really a fight as much as it was a massacre. No wonder it's called the Dark Ages. Uh, this also allegedly tenderized the meat of these animals. So I guess it's just a really, really violent meal prep. Unfortunately, this 12th century sport would pave the way for even more ferocious dogs, and I have no doubt that some aggressive breeders took uh, that some aggressive breeders tried to create the perfect fighting dog for these matches. These types of things are not even close to as bad as it will get with dogs in this story, though. In 1492, if you can finish that rhyme, you probably know the next bit of this is going to get dark. Yes. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and he brought civilized Europe to the Americas and subsequently his large attack dogs as well. He mostly brought them to test unfamiliar food. He also brought them he also brought them to terrorize the natives that he now knew lived there. And much like I mentioned before, these dogs would be chasing fleeing natives, often mauling them to death, which you know, inter entertained his men greatly, which good for them. In the 16th century, the Spanish conquistadors brought their Spanish mastiffs to the Americas to continue what Columbus had started. 16th century also brought human tracking dogs to fruition. Now, in the 7th century, jumping back a little bit, a French monk named Hubert, I'm assuming since he's French, bred dogs that would eventually turn into what we know as hounds or scent hounds. Hubert was deemed a saint later on, and he is the patron saint of hunters, mathematicians, opticians, and metal workers. He's really a renaissance man. Uh, he is 
He's honored by hunters as being the first ethical hunter, and once allegedly he was hunting a stag that had a floating cross between his, his antlers, like, you know, you often do. And God supposedly talked to him at this moment, and other versions of this story include the stag directing Hubert on how to hunt, uh, killing only the eldest stags and holding animals in their higher regard as they are God's creatures. Not really pertinent, but I just kind of found it fascinating. After this interaction, his interest in animals skyrocketed and he began, be began breeding hounds, specifically ones with adapted senses of smell. These hounds have been used for tracking hunting game like boar and deer, but in the 16th century, they began to uh, they began to use them to track runaway prisoners, fleeing warriors, and also slaves who sought freedom. So, in those last 200 years, dogs have been used in some of the most nefarious uses to date, and that is sad and unfortunate. And I think it's also a testament to what a dog would do for its owner or trainer. They don't really see the atrocities or the violence. They see the objective, they see the reward, and they see the punishment. So those uses would continue, especially the slave chasing. Although many negative tasks had been given to the dogs, the next major development with dogs came in the form of guide dogs, which I didn't even realize was such an old idea. In the 1750s, in a Parisian hospital for the blind, instructions began to be made for guide dogs to help those in need. An Austrian man named Joseph Reisinger had trained two separate dogs so well that people thought he was literally faking his blindness. Another man from Austria founded the Institute for the Training of the Blind in Vienna, which is not a blind person combat school, although I wish it was. That is when the first manuals began to be produced to help people train their dogs for blind necessities. Um, the recommendation was for poodles and shepherds as the best for this training. Later in the 18th century, uh, dog sledding became a thing, trekking across the frozen tundra of northern Canada and Alaska. Uh, and the indigenous Inuit of northern Canada had used this, uh, like a form of this dog-driven sledding, but the Russians like really made it a modern tool. They're the ones who created the formation and had lead dogs, which were given specific commands that would help them drive the pack. There's also a version of sledding that the French-Canadian military used during the Seven Years' War. It was so effective with large loads and in freezing weather and cheaper than horses, which made it perfect for them. These dogs would be used to transport many different things, but mostly mail and supplies across the tundra. And the similarities for dogs transporting in the, like, the harshness of winter kind of like compares to the usefulness of the camel in the desert, right? Camels super adapted to the desert can walk for a long time and humans use them there dogs being used in the winter in the tundra for sledding The dog sledding was also helped to prevent a massive epidemic in 1925 a very famous one But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit again So let me back up back to the morbid. Yay In 1835 British Parliament finally outlawed the wild practice of baiting Hooray! But this actually turned into a worse thing for the dogs specifically. Because of the dwindling population of bears and bulls forced their hand with its stoppage, straight up dogfighting just took its place. Michael Vick, wait outside. 
Instead of crowds watching dogs tear into chained up animals, spectators now began to bet on dogs fighting against one another, which is not a good move, uh, to the death more often than not. Obviously, dogs have fought before this, and I can only imagine what a, like a Roman Molossan fighting an Irish wolfhound would be like in like the Colosseum or something. But this was the first time it was the entertainment for many. Dogfighting spread all over, becoming a major, uh, becoming major in the United States as well as European and Asian and Latin American countries. And even though it is legal in most places, it is legal in parts of Japan as well as Russia, which doesn't really surprise me that much. The growth of the, the growth of dogfighting gave way to some newer breeds as well, since people were trying to win money however they could. The American Bull Terrier, descendant of the old, uh, the old English Terrier and Old English Bulldog, were bred for their fighting ability. They would be eventually used in uh, the Civil War, but they were loved by the dogfighting community and kind of still are. Uh, these dogs are demonized like more than any other dog, I think, in modern times anyway. And it's weird because you can look back at history and see which dogs were the ones people were scared of the most, and it's always changed. So in like this weird backwards breeding, there's many of these dogs that were bred from the most aggressive of the litters so that they can be better fighters and whatnot. And so now you have an excess number of dogs with these traits and the, and the aggressiveness bred into them over the years. Now personally, I've yet to meet an aggressive one, but I've heard plenty of stories because people can't see a picture of a, you know, a pit bull without telling their horror story about how it murdered their whole family and stuff. But in 2000, a study was conducted that found that the pit bull dogs accounted for 67% of dog bite incidents in the United States during 1979 and 1998, yet didn't even account for close to 60% of the population of dogs in the United States. A study also included Rottweilers, which, which are another dog breed that people began to get because of its dominating presence and the status they felt it brought them. Now, and what seems to have been a response to the events I just described, the ASPCA, or the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was founded in 1866. Henry Berg founded it to advocate for animal abuse legislation, originally aimed at protecting livestock like horses from being abused on the farms, but expanded it to all animals. 11 years later, in 1877, the first Westminster Kennel <laughs> the first Westminster Kennel Club dog show, Mouthful, was held at Madison Square Garden, and I have yet to ever watch it. Now, I've seen Best in Show, so that should count for something, I feel like. Uh, now, more and more clubs were formed after this, including the American Kennel Club in 1884, followed by the United Kennel Club in 1898, the UKC being for-profit and the AKC being non-profit. Back to dogs at work. In 1888, London, shaken with the gruesome murders of the Whitechapel district, hounds were being used to hunt for Jack the Ripper. These dogs were just common human trafficking hounds. Not human trafficking hounds. Oh my god. Human tracking hounds. <laughs> and had no other training to be any more help to their police counterparts. In 1899, uh, human trafficking dogs is still getting me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just imagining <laughs> this dogs just driving this van of people. Anyway, sidetracked. We're back. 
1899, police in Belgium began training, uh, training dogs specifically for police work. Even though dogs had been working with guards in centuries, for centuries at this point, uh, these dogs were specifically trained in a, more, in a much more organized fashion. This training spread throughout Europe, catching the minds of German and Austria-Hungary officials. Breeding became a focus for their training, and the search was on for a dog that could fit their very specific criteria. A man named Max von Steffenitz. I'm assuming it's got that von St you know, because it's German. Anyway, believed that dogs should be bred for working, and he encountered a, do a dog who was the product of several generations of uh of breeding that fit what he believed to be the perfect working dog he purchased his dog immediately after meeting him and this dog was the first of the now german shepherd dog line this would also pave the way for uh pave the way to other dogs synonymous with working and war like the belgian malinois we also have the integration of uh coach dogs dating back to the 17th century with dogs like the dalmatians which hail from croatia which i did not know but it makes sense because they kind of run the dalmatians are often associated with firefighters so i was curious about that and had to look it up the spotted dogs were picked due to their size to accompany horses on rides while they uh pull the coaches and like most things in the 17th century they were soon a status symbol as well because of their you know coats their spots make them super sought after, but they were also work as protection as well. This is one of the reasons why fire departments use them, but they also match the pride that the firefighters took in their coaches and were companion of uh, were one of the top companion dogs, which made training them relatively simple. In the 1870s, the uh, fire department of New York started using them as carriage dogs, and you know, like I said earlier, with the with the pride matching the status dog between fire department like you can still look at fire trucks now and they're always immaculate they're always like it seems like they're always car show ready i don't know anyway um but the relationship ended with the motorized car pulling the fire equipment but they kind of are still this weird pseudo mascot although i have heard that most fire stations like cats now because you can leave them unattended for a while and they just kind of kind of do their thing you know early 20th century followed the late 19th century's fascination with dog clubs by introducing crowd favorite dogs the chihuahua had become a perfect emblematic version of the toy breed and weirdly enough one of the oldest canine breeds in the americas chihuahuas were popular in south american civilizations and can be seen in decorations and artifacts of the aztec the takichi was the bigger version of the Chihuahua, and when the Aztecs toppled the Toltecs, they adopted their pride and joy dog, the Takichi, and made it a more refined and smaller animal. And then, when the Conquistadors conquered the Aztecs, Montezuma was said to treasure his Takichi. Uh, these dogs survived in remote villages, and then in the 18th and 19th century, Americans were fascinated with the dog, and they became very popular in the high social circles. The very fancy people and i did not know that that the chihuahua was the favorite dog of two lost empires morbid fun fact the spanish conquistadors ate an alleged a hundred thousand of these dogs when they were starving on their expedition this helped lead the takichi to extinction and the descendants ended up being found in the state of chihuahua hence the name and 
I mean, if you needed another reason to hate Conquistadors, I guess that's it. Unless you really hate Chihuahuas. But I still wouldn't pick the Conquistadors just because they kind of suck. But other dogs became very popular for just companionship and not just working. In the United States, German Shepherds and Labradors competed against one another to become the most popular dog breeds in the country. Now back to the main topic. Dogs would be once again called to help their furless friends being used in World War I for all sorts of different types of missions. Mostly used for message delivery across the battlefield, they were also used for pulling carts that held machine guns as well as supplies. In some cases, more than 2,000 dogs were in service on the Western Front, bouncing across damaged no man's land and evading artillery to deliver, my, to, de, to deliver vital messages. Some dogs were even used to catch rats in the trench to prevent them from spreading illnesses. Even pilots used them as companions. The Red Baron even had a dog named Moritz who flew with them on occasion. And I kind of like wonder if that's where the Snoopy and the Red Baron thing comes from. I'm not for sure, but it's kind of interesting. Now, one of the most famous of the uh, dogs on the Allied side was Sergeant Stubby. Sergeant Stubby served with the 102nd Infantry in France for a year and a half. In his service, he was hurt with mustard gas, and then when he would return to his com comrades, he knew to alert them of the gas when it was arriving because he had this, you know, conditioning about it and saved a bunch of lives in that process. He also located injured troops in no man's land. The acute sense of hearing also allowed him to alert his unit with artillery on the way since it produced this very particular like whining sound. He, <laughs> he even captured a German spy, you know, this dog's awesome. Uh, he was eventually smuggled home and lived for eight more years following the conclusion of the war. His body is now on display at the Smithsonian, if you're curious or in the neighborhood. Now in between world wars, we have the 1925 mushing of dogs from Ninana to Nome, which I briefly mentioned earlier. It's a 674 mile journey across snow covered lands. 20 mushers were used, 150 sled dogs in service, and every one of them are heroes for preventing this diphtheria outbreak in Nome. The journey took six days, and the dog Balto was the most famous of the dogs since he was the first one to cross the finish line. Or, I guess not finish line, but just get there. Um, now, this has led to some contention. The musher who trained Balto did not think he was lead dog material. Leonard Seppala did a bulk of the journey with his dog Togo. Togo as the lead for most of it. Seppala and Togo covered 365 miles alone, which had even experienced temperatures of negative 40 degrees. Seppala, to his own admission, could not see, but then Togo let him on. Togo is the underground hero of the event for doing a bulk of the lead, and Balto was the first one across the line, but I think they both obviously deserve a lot of credit, and all involved, everybody involved, uh, dogs included, um, are heroes. Now, some see the statue of Balto in New York City as shameful since they didn't give one to Togo, but I kind of think statues like this are more for the whole entire event and not just, you know, the face crafted. But not everybody looks at it that way. Now, with the breaking of World War II, it would be impossible to move on without discussing the use of dogs by the Nazi machine, German Shepherds. Unfortunately, due to their obedient nature, Dogs were utilized by these maniacs because they were good at being the dogs that they were bred for. 
Also, simultaneously, they had become more popular in the United States and were used by crime bosses and bootleggers, which made the pub, ma which made the public real weary of them for a long time. Which kind of goes back to the thing I was talking about by different dog breeds becoming different, like I don't know, targets by the public. These dogs were used as guard dogs for concentration camps, but also Hitler took to them like really well. One notable dog was named Blondie. Uh, this was a favorite of not just Hitler, but like everybody around him. He had Blondie with him in his bunker, and even during his last days, he used the dog's loyalty against her. He had a doctor test cyanide pills on the dog, to which she died. And weirdly enough, after Ava Braun's suicide, workers of the bunker were more sad about Blondie's death, which I guess kind of surprises me, but then again doesn't really, because it's a dog, dude. Uh, the Allies used dogs in many different ways, just as they had in World War I. Since trench warfare was not the norm anymore, they adapted. Uh, Soviet troops trained dogs to run under German tanks while strapped with explosives. The only problem is that they trained them with Soviet tanks and that the dogs were just as likely to run under Russian tanks or towards their Russian counterparts in the heat and confusion of battle. <laughs> and this would ultimately lead to Soviet deaths. The U.S. used dogs donated by owners to aid the Pacific Theater. Dogs were used to help take the islands back from the Japanese, and the Doberman Pinscher became the official dog of the United States Marine Corps, even though they didn't exclusively use this dog breed, but it still became their mascot. 545 dogs returned with their handlers after their fighting in the Pacific Theater. And World War II has its own Sergeant Stubby as well. Chips! A German Shepherd Collie Malamute mix is considered one of the most decorated animals of any war, having served in the 3rd Infantry Division traveling to Africa, Italy, France, and Germany. In 1943, Chips and his handler, Private John Rowell, were pinned down by Italian machine guns. Chips broke from his handler, rushed the pillbox, and attacked the enemy gunners. The four-man team ran away to flee the attacker and then surrendered. Chips had one man by the throat and was ordered to release him, his handler fearing that he was going to kill the guy. He received a few wounds, but then later helped capture 10 more Italian fighters. He was given the Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, and the Purple Heart, even though those were all, like, semi-revoked after. Like, they weren't taken away, but they basically were like, you can't do that anymore. And they made an official prohibition of commendation of animals. He was unofficially awarded a theater ribbon with an arrowhead for assault landing and battle stars for each of his eight campaigns. He went on to receive the PDSA Dickin Medal at, and the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery posthumously, which is a very long medal name. Civilians were even asked to help the war effort, not just with war bonds or factory jobs, but there's even a program called Dogs for Defense asking pet owners across the United States to donate their pups for military duty. This was a donation, but I imagine, just imagine how crazy it would be to be a mom who donated her dog to the war, and then her sons all get drafted, and then one of them's Matt Damon. No, but they did donate their dogs, and they had requirements for what they were looking for as far as traits go. They asked that dogs were either sex, between one and five years old, physically fit, and had what they call watchdog traits. Uh, dog duties in World War II 
uh, <laughs> get it, uh, dog duties would have held a wide variety of jobs and were not all four-legged versions of Rambo like Chips. Now, Chips was also a donation, which is pretty awesome considering he could have just been chasing squirrels and pooping in peace. All the effort should be attributed to the people who trained him before he shipped out because this non-military dog showed up on the European front ready to kick ass and that's, that's what he did. Now there were 18,000 donated dogs that made up the bulk of the war, however 8,000 would be denied uh, due to failed exams which were things like excitability, near gunfire, disease, poor smell, uh, poor sense of smell. <laughs> they just smell bad so you can't, you can't go to war with us, sorry buddy. Um, and then also unsuitable temperament. There are also around 2,000 trained military dogs. The jobs of these dogs were primarily what we would think of guarding supplies and spaces, carrying messages, but also like rescuing down pilots, was, which is pretty cool. And then there was a return to historical form in the Korean War for dogs. Before we reach Korea, let's talk a little bit about the military and their focus on training these dogs. In 1942, during World War II, Dogs for Defense inspired Le Lieutenant Colonel Clifford C. Smith, which has no relation to Cliff Clifford the Big Red Dog, but how funny would that be? Lieutenant Colonel Clifford spoke with his constituents, and an experimental program was born under the Quartermaster Corps of the inspection division within the plant protection branch of the government, which is the most bureaucratical title I've ever heard. This program would be the genesis of the dog training in the military. The Quartermaster Corps didn't just train dogs, they trained the handlers. Um, a manual from 1943 gave this instructions on training, typically lasted 8 to 12 weeks. First the dogs got used to military life and a sort of basic training atmosphere. After that they moved on to more specialized training depending on what their role would be. Sentry dog, scout dog, patrol dog, messenger dog, or mine dogs. Uh, the Quartermaster Corps set up uh, war dog platoons in the March of 1944 to help out Europe and the Pacific. There are 15 platoons in all with 7 serving in Europe and 8 in the Pacific. Apparently, the Japanese didn't dare ambush any patrols led with the war dogs in the Pacific, which talk about a good reputation. The Quartermaster Corps even tried to train dogs to find wounded soldiers on the battlefield. Now, they tested this out in May of 1944, but it didn't really work out because the dogs couldn't tell the difference between injured soldiers and those that were just front. Something which is going to come back around later. Uh, that I have a story to tie into. After World War II, responsibility for training military dogs was taken over by the Military Police Corps, and they started with an initial 32 breed range of dogs that they would train, but got worked down into seven. By 1944, that seven included German Shepherds, Doberman Pinschers, Belgian Sheepdogs, Siberian Huskies, Farm Collies, Eskimo, Eskimo Dogs, and Malamutes. Uh, you know, and those seven make sense to me. And you're not going to get a lot done with an English Bulldog or a Corgi. Now, Corgis are very intelligent and started out as a barnyard dog, uh, herding cattle, catching rodents. The breed goes back to the 10th century even. Their uses changed when fenced-in pastures became, uh, fenced-in pastures demanded longer-legged herding dogs. 
but they remained popular as just like friends and show dogs. But I like to pick on them because I have friends who have them. Plus, videos of them running really, really, really fast crack me up. Anyway, back to it. Uh, the Korean War saw the canine military dogs similar to what we think of today, but the real jump would happen more in Vietnam. The dogs in Korea still had value, but with the war only lasting three years, there's only so much that they could do. There were official scout dog platoons, however, only one would see the action in Korea, but the 26th scout dog platoon would be integral in the protection of the soldiers deployed there. Around 1,500 dogs saw action in Korea, which is a steep drop-off compared to World War II, but the scale of the conflict was different as well. Despite this, there are some heroic actions worth noting. Most of the dogs were used on patrols, specifically the nighttime patrols. These dogs were instrumental in identifying enemy troops that were hidden by silently signaling to the handlers. One such case was Arlo, a six-year-old German Shepherd who was assigned to, uh, to a platoon and did what he was trained to do. Arlo alerted a scent to his handler, Sergeant Jack North who then alerted the rest of the group and they all dropped and held still. Arlo alerted again, but this time to the left for movement. The sound of voices and marching ahead, the help of Arlo allowing them to navigate around this enemy troop without incident. Another excellent pup, Scout Dog York, was a remarkable canine who demonstrated exceptional success with the 26th Infantry Scout Dog Platoon in Korea. Throughout his service, York carried out 148 combat missions, with his final mission taking place the day prior to the signing of the armistice, which brought an end to the war. Other events such as dogs ambushing snipers, breaking enemy lines, and tracking the enemy sent. The AKC, which I mentioned earlier, even described on their website that the North Koreans and Chinese yelled over loudspeakers saying, Yankee, tank your, <laughs> take your dog and go home. I actually looked to find reports of this, but it might just be a rumor, but it's a pretty funny rumor. And it kind of takes the Korean and Chinese armies to like this Scooby-Doo level of villain of sadness. <laughs> uh, I could have taken the peninsula if it wasn't for you pesky Yankees and your damn dogs. Uh, I, can't <laughs> I, I can't help but think that a part of this animosity was due to the nature of the local Koreans and the dogs. The poverty-stricken country often relied on dogs for their meat. Uh, for their meat so encountering dogs that were at the very least fearsome guard dogs had to play a little bit on their mentality it was not all sunshine and rainbows for the canine warriors dog named champ would unfortunately step on a landmine while on patrol as you know dogs were not yet uh, trained to alert for mines or traps in the korean war champ died instantly and his handler was severely injured there's also uh Another dog that was able to prevent a disaster despite not being trained to find these explosives. Happy was on a nighttime patrol and stopped in his tracks and refused to move forward. The platoon leader was frustrated and decided to push on, moving past, happily, uh, moving past Happy and it immediately stepping on a landmine, which killed him and unfortunately Happy as well. The 26 provided support to every division and even supported UN un units. The members of the 26 were awarded three silver stars, six bronze stars for valor, 35 bronze stars for meritorious service, and far too many purple hearts. The dogs did not receive the awards due to that uh, directive after chips, which I had mentioned earlier. 
With the evolution of combat happening, dogs were trained to sense things like bombs and traps by the time Vietnam occurred, and they would be ready. With the different climate and terrain came new challenges for the military dogs during the Vietnam conflict. This one is marred by so much controversy, so I'll be focusing strictly on the dogs again here because Vietnam's just a mess. Learning from their mistakes in Korea, the U.S. military began to train their dogs on uh, detecting explosives and traps. Estimated number of saved lives by these advances in training are reported to be near 10,000 service members, closely matching the number of dog handlers involved in the conflict. Around 5,000 canines served in Vietnam, possibly more as the army didn't really retain complete records before 1968. Of the close to 60,000 deaths in Vietnam for the United for the United States military, less than 300 of those were handlers, around 232 dogs were killed in action. Of the 294 handlers who were killed in Vietnam, one of them, Staff Sergeant Robert W. Hartstock from the 44th IPSD received the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously for extraordinary heroism and bravery in defending against an attack, uh, in defending against a sapper attack on the Dao, Dao Tang base camp. In, uh, in Vietnam, obviously. The Marines and the Army began an inter-service training of canines to train scout dogs, marking the first time since, he, since World War II that Marines would use scout dogs. Now, this is kind of cool. Uh, they trained at a camp named Camp Kaiser, which is named after the first Marine scout dog killed in Vietnam. And this is kind of tying into one of the things that I've noticed in the research of military canine handlers and just the units in general. Uh, like, they're always a very tight-knit group. Like, I know the military is obviously supposed to be like that in general, and that was kind of evident during my time, but, like, I have a friend who worked as a handler, and they just always seem to be very ingrained in the brotherhood lifestyle. Handlers, connections, like, even, well, even since he's out, like, they all just seem very, very close still. Uh... Dogs in Vietnam caused so much annoyance to the enemy troops that bounties uh, amounting to $20,000 were placed for their capture. The most famous of the canines in Vietnam was Nemo, and then Robert Thronberg and his uh, trusty German Shepherd Nemo served together during the Vietnam War. While maneuvers, Nemo detected an approach of Viet Cong guerrillas and alerted Thronberg, allowing them both to prepare for the impending attack. Despite being wounded in the ensuing confrontation, Nemo's quick thinking and bravery kept the enemy at bay long enough for Thronberg to call reinforcements. When the, rescues, when, when the rescuers arrived, they found Thronberg unconscious, but with Nemo standing guard over him, refusing to let anyone approach. Eventually, with the help of a veterinarian, Nemo was calmed down so that Thronberg could receive medical attention. It's a good boy. For his, for his courage, Thronberg was awarded both the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star with Valor. After retiring, Nemo was one of the first dogs permitted to return to the United States after serving in Vietnam. Now, list this, now this leads to one of the more depressing aspects of the United States military in handling their canines. Dog lovers, you've been warned. Uh, sad truth that the dogs who served in Vietnam got a pretty rough deal in the end. No pun intended. Even in Korea, there's like a similar fate that happened. In Korea, soldiers were given roughly three hour notice that the dogs would not be coming home with them. Now, I wonder if maybe they were more aware of this by the time Vietnam arrived. You'd think after all they did for 
the soldiers there, they'd get some kind of reward or at least, you know, a nice retirement. But nope. Nope. The military just saw them as equipment and got rid of them in the cheapest way possible. You believe it, as most of the dogs in the units were being deactivated in the early 70s. Uh, the dogs were given either to the South Vietnamese Army, who didn't even really want them, or just put down. And it's kind of just a disgrace in the way that it was handled uh, to treat such brave and loyal animals this way. Barely 200 dogs who served in Vietnam made it back to the United States. That's, you know, roughly 5,000 that were there estimated now this kind of leads into the final topic or final chapter of this topic the modern inclusion of the dogs in the military in 2000 which is a lovely length of time to get this issue fixed robbie's law was implemented to allow the military working dogs to be adopted by public agencies or former handlers my friend that i mentioned before actually received a dog this way which i think is awesome but the sad truth is that prior to the signing of this law, most, if not all, canines in the military groups could be seen as equipment and disposed of following service. The fact that the reported expenses to train one of these dogs is so high is wild to me that they just got rid of them after their service. For a general working dog, it could be twenty dollars to $40,000. Specially trained dogs can cost up to $150,000 when it's all said and done. Robbie's Law did not change the designation, but in 2015 they did finally make it uh, make the change, and I think it's kind of symptomatic of the respect finally being given to both the dogs and the handlers as well by the general public. With random skirmishes, including Desert Storm in between the conflict in the Middle East following 9/11 and Vietnam, a lot of the focus was taken to ensure dogs would be able to be the most effective that they could be. Dogs had been trained in both detection and the search for different things for security, such as narcotics and other things of that nature, but more explosives and a more wide scope. This was particularly useful in Afghanistan and Iraq with roadside bombs and different types of traps that could otherwise harm people on either side of the conflict. Military working dogs had been attached to Ranger and SEAL units going on air missions. The most famous of recent years was the use of a dog named Conan that ended up on a raid that resulted in the death of a member of the terrorist organization ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Another dog was uh, with the SEALs during Operation Neptune Spear, the raid in which Osama bin Laden was killed. Uh, that dog's name is Cairo. Both of these dogs are Belgian Malinois. And those are the dogs that look like the scrawnier, cracked out version of the German Shepherd because they kind of are. Uh, <laughs> Remember when I was discussing the Belgian Sheepdogs being introduced in the newly formed Army K-9 uh, Corps during World War II? Well, they have a few variants, one of them being the Malinois. And Malinois is a French adjective describing something coming from the Michelin or Malinese in French, which is a city in Belgium. So these dogs are the most Belgian a dog can be, apparently. Anyway... <laughs> With that, we have reached the end of the military working dog history and have arrived at the present, but I want to talk about the non-military dogs for a moment. The civilian cousins of the military working dogs making strides in the way that they care for veterans and civilians alike. As I mentioned before, service dog training goes all the way back to the 18th century, and by the 1920s, a focus on guide dogs being able to navigate cities with their owner was pretty normal. 
Training centers began to pop up all around the globe. Dogs began to uh, be looked at as more than just guides. We now have dogs that can assist in uh, with epilepsy, PTSD, anxiety, and other challenges as well. I'm sure we've all seen those videos of the dogs like rolling their owners or moving their hunter, head, moving under their head while they practice a seizure to prevent bodily harm. It's all very, very impressive and crazy to think that over a hundred years ago, they were just considered tools of war or just status symbols. Now, one of the biggest non-military things I think of with uh, trained dogs is search and rescue. Of course, you see dogs being used when there's like a missing person on the news or some type of natural disaster like Katrina. But I always think of the stories of search dogs being used in aftermath of 9-11 when some dogs needed to find fake targets just to prevent the dog from being too stressed out from not finding any bodies, which is sad as shit. Alright, so let's wrap it up here, review some of the things we learned today. Wild that a random thought while playing this video game has led to a hour-long podcast. I hope everyone listening walks away with learning something, and that is the goal for every episode of this new show. Some of the things that I found interesting today were the experiment replicated the dog's domestication from wolves done by the Soviets with the gray foxes, or the silver foxes that I talked about earlier. Uh, the fact that ancestors of Chihuahuas were highly regarded in some indigenous cultures in Central and South America until being eaten to extinction by the Spanish. So, another reason to hate those expeditions. Uh, the awards given to the United States military dogs stopped after Chip received several high honors in World War II. And I did not mention this in the main storyline, but the tradition of police and military dogs uh, being a rank higher than their handler to establish respect and also prevent mistreat mistreatment of the animals is kind of cool but it should also be mentioned that the dogs learn much better with positive reinforcement and a reward system so mistreatment is a rare occurrence at the professional level i think the main takeaway is that that most people even dog people like me get so jaded to dogs being everywhere and everything that you don't really stop to think about how they got there and how many different decisions led to the dogs you have. This leads me to my last thought about this particular episode, but I did not obviously bring up every single dog breed because there's no way that I could do that. There's so many specific little dog breeds and not enough time, so I tried to keep it focused on dogs surrounding the military and some service dogs as well. So hopefully that kept it interesting and not overloaded with information. Now, some final thoughts or just more of a rant will be heard in the last segment I like to call Remedial Rants. Alright, the first remedial rant of this podcast. I want to talk about a couple things that I think largely get swept up when talking about dogs of war, working dogs, or just dogs in general. The first thing is the alpha that so many of these tough guys love to latch onto as a thing that they feel describes them. The origin is actually kind of amusing since it has been recanted by the man who coined the term for animal behavior. L. Dev L. David Mech did a study on wolf behavior and is the reason we have the term alpha as he characterized this phenomenon, but when he tried to but when he tried to replicate it, 
he found that what he was really just seeing was the parents of the pack and that it was not a defining trait. So it really was just the mother and father of these younger but not quite baby wolves that he saw before, which is pretty funny considering most of these so-called alpha bros don't want children or to raise a family. Uh, the other part of this rant centers around a sensitive topic, but I think highlights the misunderstanding of how working dogs can be, uti be utilized by the general public. Around the time of the Uvalde school shooting, I was working with this gentleman who was in his 60s maybe? And we had finished Stop the Bleeding training that was directed that we take since there was an uptick in workplace shootings, which is obviously super fun uh, that that's happening. Not scary at all. But the instructors were uh, two sheriffs of the local county. At the end, there was this Q&A where someone asked about school shootings and the conversation went to this older gentleman that I mentioned before asking why training dogs to smell bad guys wasn't the answer. He said he wanted a dog in every classroom in the country to smell bad guys coming. And I thought this was silly uh, already, but, you know, then I asked a buddy of mine, the one who I mentioned, who trains dogs, and he told me all the all of the reasoning why this wouldn't work, most notably because dogs cannot smell bad guys. They can't smell intent. But also because of how expensive it would be. Alright, so there's 130-some thousand K-12 schools in America, and the average of rooms in a school based on the average number of students at a, at a public school, which is 500-ish, meaning you'd need about 20 to 30 classrooms per school, maybe more. We'll do that as a baseline. That's $1.5 million in trained dogs at one school. And since the average cost, uh, would, you know, the average cost of a fully trained canine is about $50,000 for this kind of thing. If you know basic math, you will then multiply 1.5 million by 130,000 and you'll begin to see another problem in the idea of a dog in every classroom. A $195 billion problem. Not to mention paying the handlers, the food for the dog, and then you have to worry about the kids reacting to the dog, causing the dog to be stressed when... Because you've seen the working dogs with the vests that say, do not pet. And now you're going to put those in the classroom full of kids who will want to touch it immediately. You know, and I don't have any solutions for the school shooting epidemic our country seems to have, but that idea that the dude presented just, <laughs> and then he got mad at me for telling him that it was dumb, is just that. It's dumb. So anyway, that's it for remedial rant section. And that's it for this week. Uh, next week, I'm going to be discussing the pirates. How in the world did Pittsburgh ever win a pennant? No, not those pirates. The swashbucklers, the yar matey, the SpongeBob painting, you know, pirates. Gonna be doing a history of the earliest account of pirates as well as the overglamorized Caribbean pirates. Um, and also some different things that I found super interesting. But until then, you know, if you have a topic, a historical topic that you'd like me to, uh, you'd like to hear me talk about, email me at remedialscholar at gmail.com I'll add it to the list also you know leave a review wherever you can which helps others find the show also listen to my other podcast West of Nowhere uh, that's going to be I'm going to have a link tree in the description and you'll be able to follow that and take it to all of the things and yeah thank you thank you all for supporting me thank you all for listening taking the time out of your day and you have a good week. All right. Bye.